Hello. A quick note before we start. This podcast talks about sexual abuse of both minors and vulnerable adults. Please continue to take care of yourself. The church has clearly had great difficulty in confronting the issue of accountability. They're still playing the old king and courtiers game where when you lose favor with the king, you fall on your sword. Everyone has to be accountable. At some level, this is enormously complicated. At another level, this is really simple. I'm expected to keep my promises. They ought to keep theirs. From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. Last week, we learned how state legislation can hold the church responsible. This week, we're looking at what the church can do to hold its own leadership accountable. You'll hear the familiar voice of Mari Collins, a survivor who served on the Pope's Commission for the Protection of Minors, alongside our other guest, Father Hans Zollner. And we'll consult theologian Rick Gallardi about both long-term reform and immediate fixes to the legal code of the Catholic Church, otherwise known as canon law. But first, we're returning to a story many American Catholics will remember, the case of Theodore McCarrick the cardinal who was stripped of his title and office for abusing two minors in the 70s. McCarrick is important because we want to understand how such a high-ranking church leader, who even had a hand in drafting the church's reforms, went unreported for so long. Especially because not all his victims were minors. Some were adult seminarians. And a person who did speak out was ignored. I'm Father Boniface Ramsey. I'm the pastor of St. Joseph Church, Yorkville, in the Yorkville section of Manhattan. From the late 80s, well into the 90s, Father Ramsey was teaching at Immaculate Conception Seminary. That's where he first learned about the sexual misconduct of then-Archbishop McCarrick. The word was out that McCarrick was inviting seminarians to a beach house on the Jersey Shore and that he would invite five seminarians, and there were five beds. So that meant there were six people in five beds, and he would choose one of them to share a bed with him. Now, the amazing thing about this is that virtually everybody knew it. It was considered the archbishop's eccentricity at the time. Plus, it was always said, when you were in bed with him, he never touched you. So I guess it was rationalized by the authorities in the seminary as, well, this is just a strange habit that the archbishop has. He never touches them, so it's uh, weirdly chaste. So people knew that McCarrick was sharing a bed with seminarians, and it was clearly inappropriate. But this was also before the Me Too movement, and no one called it sexual harassment. This was not something that I talked about a lot. I just considered people's sexual proclivities, something that I wouldn't talk about, particularly an archbishop's sexual proclivities, just not to talk about it. I became more open about it, but only slightly more open, when I learned that lay people knew about this too. 
Father Ramsey went to the rector of the seminary. And it must have been the fall of 1988 that I went to the rector and talked with him about this. The rector was well aware of it. The rector was embarrassed by it. The rector was a very... At the seminary, Father Ramsey was part of a formation committee that reviewed seminarians and decided who would go on to become a priest. And of course, who wasn't a good fit. I was very firm about one seminarian that I thought should be expelled who was abusing another seminarian. A lot of people seem to have known about this, and I spoke out forcefully at one of these formation faculty meetings against this guy, and as a result, he was expelled. But when Father Ramsey returned in the fall, he learned that he'd been removed from the committee. When I came back in September, there was, I think, posted the the next meeting for the formation faculty. So I, I went to the rector to ask him a question about it. He said, the archbishop knows that you disagree with him in certain regards. And I kind of looked, and he said, yes, with regard to so-and-so. My respect for the archbishop plunged at that point. I called Archbishop Montalvo, the nuncio, and uh, told him that I had an important letter that I was going to send to him. I didn't want the letter to be overlooked. And uh, before actually sending the letter, I called a friend of mine in the Newark Archdiocese, he's a priest, who said, don't send the letter. He said, McCarrick will ruin you. So I decided that I, I wasn't going to send the letter. And uh, I realized I had to telephone Montalvo and now tell him the letter wasn't coming. So I call him on Friday after Thanksgiving and once again get him on the phone right away and say that now I'm not going to send the letter (laughs) because I've been told that McCarrick would do something to hurt me. And I'll never forget Montalvo's response. Montalvo said, what do you think? We are fools? Send the letter. Send the letter. So I sent the letter. And then I never heard anything. So how did you know that the nuncio was the person to go to in the Catholic Church at the time? I knew that the nuncio was the proper person to go to because he was the next in the chain of command over McCarrick. Every priest in the United States knows that the nuncio is the pope's representative. They know that they theoretically could go to him for whatever they think the Vatican should know. He would go through the nuncio. Right. But what about these young seminarians? Would they know that they could go to the nuncio? They might or they might not. You know, I don't know how sophisticated they are in affairs clerical. Father Ramsey knew who to go to. But it's not clear whether the young priests in training would have known how or where to report McCarrick. And the process didn't get any easier for Father Ramsey. Six years passed and he never heard back from the nuncio or the Vatican about his letter. And then, in 2006... I received a letter from the Vatican, from Archbishop Leonardo Sandri, who's now a cardinal, who was in the Vatican State Department. Father Ramsey finally heard back from the Vatican. But it wasn't in direct regard to McCarrick's behavior. Instead, the Vatican was checking job references. Asking whether somebody who is 
being considered for promotion to some post in the Vatican, was one of the seminarians involved in what I had discussed in my letter to Archbishop Montalvo that I had sent to the nunciature in 2000. The letter from Sandri did not mention McCarrick. It mentioned the seminarians. But the importance of the letter from Sandri rested in the fact that it showed that the Vatican was aware. The Pope at the time was John Paul II, of course. That was an important moment in this because it proved that the Vatican knew and did nothing. So Father Ramsey decided to take his story to Joe Feuerhardt, a journalist at the National Catholic Reporter. And Joe Feuerhardt replied to me that he was well aware of the rumors, but nobody could substantiate them. Oh, McCarrick was denying these things all along. He was firm about this is all untrue. These are rumors. People are out to get me, my enemies, my conservative enemies. So he let it go until he was at the funeral mass of Cardinal Egan. And there is McCarrick among the cardinals. And this somehow inflamed me so much that I decided this is awful. I finally came to the conclusion that I should write to Cardinal O'Malley, who was responsible for the protection of children. That was his mandate. Now, that had nothing to do with seminarians or adults, but he was the closest I could think of. I get a letter back from Bob Kickham, who was Cardinal O'Malley's secretary, thanking me for sending the letter, but telling me that this had nothing to do with Cardinal O'Malley, whose mandate was children. Never said anything about forwarding it. What was your response at the time when you never heard back or when you just heard from O'Malley's secretary? Well, I, I talked to a friend and I said, should I pursue this or not? Should I make a big to-do about it? He said, let him be. He was 85 or something or 84 at the time. Just let him be. So I decided to follow that advice until June last year, 2018, when the New York Times published the uh, news about his having been accused of abuse of a minor. And with that, I phoned the New York Times and told them that I knew about his abuse of seminarians. After this news became public, Cardinal O'Malley apologized. I mean, it was a perfectly lovely apology or recognition that he made a mistake and in not having received the letter. I think that was the case. I don't think he ever saw it. So you mentioned that there was a lot of secrecy around bishops not wanting to rat on their fellow bishop, McCarrick. Do you think that that is changing now? I don't recall saying there was a lot of secrecy. <laughs> well, I guess what I mean by that is, um, as you said, like a lot of people were aware of McCarrick's unscrupulous the, behavior. It, yeah, I should say that you know, it never occurred to me because those terms were not available to me at the time. Never occurred to me that there was a cover up or anything like that. I just accepted that everybody knew and nobody did anything. It, I didn't necessarily attach a moral weight to that. But yet, somehow you felt it sounds like a moral obligation to say something. Yes, but uh, as I look back on my actions, I see that I was also. How do I say this? I did my best, 
nothing stopped, I could leave it alone. Now, if it were supremely immoral, I wouldn't have left it alone. It was supremely immoral, but I didn't know that. There was no category to put McCarrick's behavior in. What he was doing with the seminarians was so bizarre. So given the fact that we have categories for this today, do you think that if someone in some position of authority were to find out about inappropriate behavior, that they would report it? Oh, sure. I would think. And some people are passive, you know, and don't, wouldn't. But more people are informed and more people would now, I think. What I did was see something that I thought was wrong and reported it. I didn't think of heroism, courageousness, anything like that. Just didn't. Not my way, I don't think. I think it was admirable for Father Ramsey to say something, even if he couldn't explain at the time why McCarrick's behavior was so dangerous. And he didn't just report it once. Father Ramsey reported McCarrick first to the seminary, then to the nuncio, the National Catholic Reporter, Bishop O'Malley, and finally, the New York Times. He said something five times. So what can we learn from the McCarrick scandal? First, I think it's worth noting that this was all happening before our larger Me Too discourse. The Dallas Charter was in effect, but it was focused on the abuse of children, not vulnerable adults. I think we have a new understanding. Now it's uh, simply sexual harassment by a superior against an inferior. The second takeaway is that good intentions aren't enough. Father Ramsey did the right thing and got stonewalled multiple times. So individual whistleblowing is great, but we should be looking at how systems of power work to conceal the truth and maintain the status quo. And lastly, I want to go back to the idea that secrets beget secrets. McCarrick wasn't only guilty of sexual misconduct with adults. He was later discovered to have abused minors. And so we got to ask, why would a man with his own secrets expose the secrets of people around him? McCarrick is the most extreme example of how a bishop could fail to deal with abuse. But McCarrick isn't the only bishop under scrutiny. The Philadelphia Inquirer and the Boston Globe reported that, quote, more than 130 bishops, or nearly one-third of those still living, have been accused during their careers of failing to adequately respond to sexual misconduct in their diocese. Most of these bishops are retired, and living comfortably off church pensions. Some of them are still active, ruling their diocese with the autonomy of kings. And then there's Bishop Malone of Buffalo, New York. Buffalo's bishop says things have changed in the diocese during his six-year tenure when it comes to sexual abuse by priests. But a month-long investigation by the 7 Eyewitness News I-Team has revealed he's backed not one, but two priests, despite full knowledge about abuse allegations against them. Malone is facing both state and federal investigations for cover-up of recent allegations. Not all of the allegations have been substantiated. But there are plenty of cases that are credible, which means that Malone didn't just violate state laws. 
He also didn't follow the church's own zero-tolerance policy. Bishop Malone not only returned that priest to ministry after a previous bishop removed him, but ignored three new allegations against that priest, misled others about that priest's history, and repeatedly put him around young people. But for most cases, it's more complicated. We've had everything from Cardinal Law's cover-up to Cardinal Worrell's poorly informed management. So there's no one-size-fits-all answer for how to hold bishops accountable. And we don't have a whole lot of precedent for this kind of thing. McCarrick's case started with a lay review board here in the States, but ultimately it went to the Vatican. The Vatican has many offices, or dicasteries as they're called. The dicastery that investigated McCarrick is called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, or the CDF. And in the past year, it seems to have become the default office of corrections, or at least for cases of direct abuse. But many have argued it's unrealistic to have the CDF police fellow bishops, or for any department of the Roman Curia to have that job. I remember talking to one of these people in the Vatican, and he actually said, we know how to deal with all this. We've been doing it for years. And my reaction to that in my own head certainly was, yes, you've been doing it for years, but you've been getting it wrong for years. This is Mari Collins. Earlier in the season, Mari told us the story of her abuse and how it impacted her life. But that wasn't the end of her story. After my own case had gone through and my abuser was jailed, I had gone public and then I had campaigned a lot. But I had also worked with the church here in setting up the first child protection office in the Dublin diocese. Mari wrote new guidelines for the church in Ireland, set up a survivor organization, and spoke at the Vatican's first symposium on child abuse in 2012. The following year, Pope Francis was elected. And the year after that, 2014, he created a Vatican commission that was charged with the protection of minors. Mari Collins was one of its first members. There was eight original members. You had a child psychiatrist, a psychiatrist who dealt with vulnerable adults. You had a theologian, canon lawyer, a psychologist who dealt with perpetrators. You had an international legal expert in civil law state law, and then a survivor like myself who had uh, worked with the church. So there was a mix. The commission had three priorities. Strengthen safeguards for protecting children, provide healing and care for survivors, and finally, hold bishops accountable for their negligence. Anybody who protected an abuser or who did not protect children in their diocese would have to face consequences for that. And that should be transparent in order that other church leaders would see if they went the same way, what the consequences would be. So our very first thing So they proposed a tribunal that would investigate these bishops. But there was one major obstacle. Only the Pope can actually sanction a church leader, whereas the tribunal we recommended would have given that power to the CDF Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. This was a big departure from tradition. But it seemed to be making headway. The Pope approved it. He announced that it was going to happen, it was going to take place. And then we heard nothing more about it. 
And later on, it became clear that Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith had refused to implement it. They felt it wasn't necessary. I mean, the CDF, who were refusing to do this, they also refused to talk to the Commission and say what their objections were. So that if there was some flaw in the Commission proposal, we could have sat down and worked it out. You had a department of the Vatican refusing to talk to a pontifical commission. Basically, I think the problem was we were independent of the Curia. They had no power over us and no control. And they really did not want to work with us. They saw us as outsiders and would not accept that our expertise could be of any use. Sickened by their decision, Mari Collins resigned. I made it clear in my resignation that I was resigning because the tribunal had been blocked, etc. And Cardinal Muller, who was head of the CDF at the time, he came out and said, oh, well, she doesn't understand. And there was really this patronizing attitude of, A, she's a woman, and B, she's not clerical, so therefore how could she possibly know what she's talking about? And that sort of attitude belongs in the past. It never belonged anyway, but it certainly shouldn't be something that's there now. But it is. It is still there. Now, this is where it gets confusing. On the one hand, we've heard that bishops only answer to the Pope. But on the other hand, we've seen former Cardinal McCarrick and Cardinal Pell investigated by the Vatican with the aid of the CDF. So let's see if we can clear this up by talking to someone at the heart of child protection at the Vatican. My name is Father Hans Zollner. I'm a Jesuit from Germany. I am the Father Zollner the heads the Center for Child Protection at the Gregorian University in Rome. And he was also a founding member with Mari Collins on the Pontifical Commission. When I asked him why the CDF rejected their recommendations, Father Zollner pointed to two things. One, the Congregation for Doctrine does not deal with bishops for offenses that are connected to their office or lack of compliance with the office duties or negligence. They deal with cases of abuse, but exactly. not of negligence. Right. And they don't have specific jurisdiction for bishops. Secondly, the Holy Father himself explained in a few occasions that he did ultimately not opt for such a tribunal, but for another procedure that was spelled out in 2016, I believe in September. The procedure for dealing with neglectful bishops is outlined in a document from the Pope called Like a Loving Mother. And it's very similar to the U.S. guidelines for dealing with accusations of abuse. Allegations of neglect are brought to the Vatican office responsible for a bishop, called a congregation. If there is a semblance of truth to it, the congregation will investigate further and then propose a course of action to the Pope who makes the final call. This policy has already been put to practice, but the process has remained really opaque. One of the reasons we've had trouble tracking these cases is because it's not one office that deals with them. For example, bishops from America or Germany who were negligent would need to be reported to the so-called Congregation for Bishops. Whereas bishops from Africa or Asia would be reported to the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples. And then you've got an office for the Eastern Rite and another for religious orders. So 
if we can't say what the process is like across these four offices, I thought maybe Father Zollner could explain what's happening in the office that deals with bishops from the Americas. This is precisely my point. I don't know, and I don't know who else would be able to explain that. This is one of the points that we have raised also with the Holy See. We need to know what policies are in place in the different congregations, and we urge that the congregations follow the same policies. There needs to be the common standard. Is this why it sometimes takes a lot longer than many of us would expect in order for the Vatican to produce a streamlined procedure or process? This is certainly one of the elements of this um, difficulty to come up with decisions or explanations. They are not used to talking to each other. Some of this is starting to change. Right after the Vatican summit in February 2019, the heads of these dicasteries came together to try something new, interdicasterial communication. Once they are together, they confront themselves with different opinions, and this is obviously necessary so that we can find out what are the next steps. Not only are they talking to each other, but they've organized a working group and have met four times in the month following the summit. This is progress. But for most American Catholics, it's not happening fast enough. Catholics were ready to talk about bishops' negligence at the Baltimore meeting in the fall of 2018. we just learned that a top cardinal was an abuser. Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, tonight suspended from his public priestly duties. And the Pennsylvania report had just come out describing all the ways leadership had covered abuse. Your investigation of Pennsylvania grand jury today alleged decades of abuse of children by more than 300 men described as... So yes, we wanted answers. But instead, U.S. bishops were told to hold off on voting for these measures until the Vatican summit. The has asked that we delay voting on these so that our deliberations can inform and be informed by the global meeting of the conference presidents. And when the summit rolled around, we didn't hear anything about accountability for bishops. But we did learn that the conversation here in the United States is far more advanced than in other parts of the world. In Africa and Asia, bishops didn't even recognize child sexual abuse as a massive problem. So instead of talking cover-up, the summit focused on the conversion of minds and hearts. But this shouldn't stop us from seeking justice on our own soil. I wanted to understand the channels of authority here in the U.S., so I turned to a theologian at Boston College. My name is Richard Gillardi, and most of my work is in the area of ecclesiology, particularly with attention to the exercise of authority in the church. Rick confirms what we've already heard about why we haven't been able to hold bishops accountable for their negligence. The reason they exempted themselves is current canon law holds that a bishop is only accountable to the Bishop of Rome, and so they felt canonically they couldn't be held accountable. But Rick says, if we go back far enough, history can show us a way forward. Let's go back to the early church. In the past, the church had something called synods. Those local bishops frequently gathered in regional synods. A synod is a gathering of church leaders who are addressing a particular need or matter of church governance. And when those bishops gathered, they often addressed issues of common concern. Sometimes they were disciplinary matters. 
And not infrequently, they would act to discipline a bishop within their region who they felt had in some way violated the expectations of his office. There was much more horizontal accountability then than Code of Canon Law allows right now, where our bishops have no authority under the current Code of Canon Law to discipline one another. So when can we change canon law and what sort of theology would need to buttress those changes? Well, first of all, obviously the Pope can change canon law. Pope Francis, Pope Benedict, Pope John Paul II, each of them have made modest revisions to the Code of Canon Law. I would suggest to you that a modest revision is probably not the answer. These minor revisions are easy to make, but changing the structures of accountability is a much heavier lift. That's not a six-month project, you know. That's a multi-year project. But I still think there are things that we can do now that would be tweaks in the system that could help introduce a lot more accountability than what is presently available to us. What are some of those tweaks? So it seems to me there ought to be ways in which we have oversight boards comprised of lay people and perhaps clergy as well that would, at the minimum, have the right to flag what they think may be Episcopal misconduct and bring it to the attention of the Vatican at the very least. And it seems to me that would not be hard to establish. And I think it could even be reconciled with the Code of Canon Law. Or if not, there it seems to me the Pope could intervene and issue sort of a micro-fix to the Code of Canon Law, a short-term fix Right, that would Rick is invoking that, the that Catholic principle of subsidiarity, which basically says, start with local governance before moving up to papal authority. But Rick also adds that these local oversight boards shouldn't be confused for a lasting solution. I'm a little nervous that we not rely too much on enforcement mechanisms or investigatory mechanisms, because I think we need something more fundamental here. What we need are more robust mechanisms that allow bishops talking to their people, not just to problem solve instances of Episcopal malfeasance, but to draw on the wisdom and insight of the people of God. The Code of Canon Law allows, for example, for bishops to convene diocesan synods. But I would point out that here in the United States, We haven't had a plenary synod in over 100 years. In other words, it's high time the church uses what it's already got in place to hear from the laity. And when it does that, the church needs to be ready for the laity to disagree. Pope Francis said that we need to make sure that consultation doesn't just mean consulting people likely to agree with me. I've never met a bishop or by the way, a chair of a theology department, university president, or provincial of a religious community who didn't think they were consultative. Everybody thinks they're consultative. The $64,000 question is, who do you consult? And generally, we consult people we can rely on to give us positive feedback. The synodal vision of the church that Pope Francis is calling us to is more than just that kind of token consultation. It means being a church that is thoroughly a listening church, that habituates itself, that creates opportunities where regularly we're listening to people, even those who disagree with us, even those who maybe have an ax to grind, even those who are angry. These are the folks we're most likely to exclude from our consultation. 
We need a both-and strategy for holding bishops accountable. We need emergency mechanisms for the crisis of leadership right now. And we need to be thinking about the long-term health of the church. And that's because this scandal is symptomatic of a much deeper underlying dysfunction. That is, a failure to listen. We began this episode by asking, how can the church hold bishops accountable for their negligence? I think the best we can offer right now is an outline of what we know and what remains unclear. So here it is. On paper, you've got a policy outlined in the Pope's letter, Like a Loving Mother. But in practice, we haven't yet seen these policies successfully implemented anywhere. Various Vatican departments are working on it, but it's still unclear what they're doing and on what schedule. We've learned that the CDF is responsible for investigating cases of abuse involving bishops, but not cases of cover-up or neglect. Anything related to how a bishop managed his diocese goes to one of four offices at the Vatican. And until recently, these offices weren't talking. This is incredibly frustrating, even for insiders like Father Zollner, who has repeatedly said, we need common standards and open communication. And then there's the question of authority. We hear that only the Pope can hold bishops accountable. Rick Gallardi says, yeah, that's true. But there's no reason we can't have local boards flag cases and then pass them on to Rome. There are a ton of reasons that holding bishops accountable is complicated. But explaining those complications shouldn't be a way of excusing the church from fixing this. If all the promises of reform are going to mean something, having a clear standard for bishops has to be a priority. Next time on Deliver Us, we'll unpack the problem of clericalism. It's about isolation. It's about thinking you know best. What it will take to change Catholic culture. So women are already the majority. But I think maybe what we need to consider is who has the actual authority. And our own habits of obedience. A priest can ask for uncritical deference, but for the culture to be sustained, we the laity have to give it to him. Deliver Us is produced by America Media in collaboration with Spoke Studios. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and an executive producer with Eric Sundrup. Our producers are Sarah Esikoff, Rebecca Seidel, and Eloise Blondio, with assistance in concept and story development from Sam Sawyer and Carrie Weber. Promotion and outreach from Amber Smith. Production help from Kieran Freeman. Our sound design is by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed and produced by Chris McCormick. This episode was written by me, Maggie Van Dorn.
If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit www.rain.org. That's www.rain.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.